Live from WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Evanston's historic housing reparations. We still have a unfortunate racial divide. Lunar New Year celebrations in COVID. Generally like children and maybe early teenagers get it. I think once you start becoming older, it's like it becomes a little socially unacceptable to be accepting money from people. The documentary about the call to free Britney Spears. The documentary asks the question, how can someone be a high functioning performer while being portrayed as someone who is unable to take care of herself? And the story behind the notorious campus geese. One of the things that geese have going for them is their body size and the fact that they can open their wings and, and hiss at you. So they're gonna absolutely do that to humans. Those stories tonight. Evanston is making a historic move to provide reparations of up to $25,000 to Black residents affected by housing discrimination. Reporter Melissa Perry speaks with leaders behind the effort to provide reparations and takes a look at how the program will be funded. The city of Evanston is making history as it becomes the first city in the country to implement a reparations program in an attempt to address the historical impact of housing discrimination, segregation, and racism. JRC, or the Jewish Reconstructionist Congregation, recently hosted a Zoom event led by Alderman Robin Simmons that gave residents more information on why and how reparations will be carried out in Evanston. As well as we were doing in our welcoming city and our good intentions and our ceremony, we still have a unfortunate racial divide. We still have a um, what seems to be a segregated community. We still have a $46,000 uh, average household income gap between Black and White Evanston, the education gap. And I thought we might do something bold and different, something as bold as ra- and radical as the uh, Jim Crowing and the redlining and the oppression, all various forms of oppression that we have right here in Evanston. Director of Shorefront Legacy Center, Dino Robinson, has been a crucial member in this effort as his research on Evanston's history of redlining and discrimination clearly demonstrates how discriminatory housing practices led to the devaluement of predominantly Black communities, such as Evanston's Fifth Ward. There is a distinct demarcation in time where you can start seeing a pattern of, of, of housing discrimination. And it started around like 1900, 1905. And it appeared in the form of art, um, articles appearing in, no, in newspapers saying, you know, the problem of the, 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 the black population or the Negro population growing at Evanston. So over a course of, you know, 20 years, you had landlords that would refuse to rent to black families, banks that would refuse lending to black families to buy a house. Uh, if you did want to buy a house, the real estate agencies would only show you a certain area in Evanston, and that would be what we now know as the Fifth Ward. Redlining map codified all of that, that made that area undesirable and not to invest in. That map alone and the write-up with that uh, pretty much set the defense why banks will not put money into those communities. It's not desirable, it'll be a lost investment, so don't invest in that community. And that's what stayed and uh, kept it going for decades afterwards. So how is reparations funded, you ask? In short, cannabis. 
In 2019, the city of Evanston committed that the first $10 million in sales tax revenue on cannabis would go towards Evanston's reparations fund. Alderman Melissa Wynn says that it was crucial for the city council to find a dedicated revenue stream for reparations. It's something that we've talked about in Evanston at the city council on and off for years, but without a dedicated revenue stream, it was not something that we could address. So it was sort of fortuitous that this idea of reparations came forward just as Illinois' uh, marijuana legalization happened. And also it's tied in the sense that the, um, the effects of the war on drugs have been felt much, much more, have been disproportionately uh, felt by the Black community. The initial goal of the reparations fund is to provide housing relief in an attempt to support Black ownership in the city of Evanston. As Simmons pointed out in the Zoom event, Evanston's Black population has declined in recent years in response to unaffordable housing and property taxes. There were a series of public meetings in the summer of 2019 where we received feedback from the residents, largely the stakeholder community, on what reparations could mean for our city. How could we deliver repair, remedy, redress? And more often, uh, it was somewhere around housing. And that's how we ended up prioritizing housing as our first initiative. Very appropriate to focus on housing first because that is the most likely path uh, for families to build wealth. We have passed our first remedy proposal it is using the first $400,000 of the $10 million committed to uh, have a homeownership initiative. It would be available for both buyers and existing homeowners, and it would be in the form of a direct benefit of $25,000. While Evanston may be the first city to implement reparations, for many Black Evanstonians, it's a long time coming. In our interview, Dino talked to me about what he hopes the long-term impacts of reparations will look like. Critically from my point of view um, and why I embrace this program so much is that I'm looking at it, not how it's gonna benefit the population right now today, but how it'll benefit future, um, the future generations that live here. In order to do something significant, you have to have a large pool of money. And this money pool is growing right now. And there are some people that want to like spend it right away. Um, that leads to, I think, some short-term Band-Aid approaches. But if you're able to accumulate enough money where you can use the proceeds of that money to make a larger impact in a greater community, I think that has a larger benefit that can last in perpetuity. So my dream is that, you know, my my great-great-grandkids come back to Evanston and see a reparations program that, let's say, for example, is enough money that every uh, Black kid that graduates from ETHS has a free ride scholarship to whatever university or trade school they want to go to. That is an impact. Thank you for listening. This is Melissa Perry, WNUR News. The Lunar New Year began on Friday. Reporter Maria Jimena-Aragon speaks with Northwestern students to learn how they typically celebrate and how the pandemic switched up their celebratory plans for the Year of the Ox. While many students were scrambling to buy flowers and chocolates for Valentine's Day on Sunday, an even bigger celebration was taking place across the world, the Lunar New Year. 
Also known as the Spring Festival, the holiday marks the first new moon of the lunar solar calendar, which is the calendar traditionally used in many East Asian countries, including China, Vietnam, Singapore, and South Korea. Medill sophomore Tina Huang has a more concrete explanation. I just describe it as like a Western regular New Year, um, but based on the lunar calendar and with a lot more money involved. The celebration typically falls sometime between January 21st and February 20th, with this year being Friday, February 12th. In Chinese astrology, 12 animals represent the Chinese zodiac signs. Each year, one animal and its personality traits is assigned to the 12-month period. And 2021 is the year of the ox, which is said to bring stability and calmness for a year of great opportunities and economic prosperity. Medill sophomore Allison Ree explains. Uh, there's something called red pockets, red envelopes. It's called like hongbao, which means like red envelope. And so you say to people like gongxi fatai, which means like happy lunar new year. And then they'll say like hongbao nalai, which means like take the red envelope. Um, and usually there's money in it. When I was younger and I lived in Hong Kong, like in my apartment complex, I would just walk around and people would just hand me red envelopes like strangers. And they'd always be filled with money. And so it was like the greatest experience of my life, just getting free money from people on the street. Just a little curious, um, what age do you, are you the mm-hmm. one receiving it versus giving it? That's a really good question. I think uh, when I was a kid, I think generally like children and maybe early teenagers get it. I think once you start becoming older, it's like it becomes a little socially unacceptable to be accepting money from people. Um, That's like Chinese culture. In Korean culture, we also do exchange money, but it's based off of like when you get married. Approximately 1.5 billion people celebrate each year. So traditions and celebrations vary across cultures. And we'll do fireworks and get with family, um, almost like a Thanksgiving situation. And we'll call like all of our international relatives and wish them a happy new year and tell stories like, um, like folk stories and legends about the new year. Um, and before, honestly, most of the work comes in before that. There's a lot of like cooking and cleaning and prepping for a prosperous new year and a lot of like just a lot of traditions that we have to do yeah mccormick sophomore quinny tran adds we'll have everybody over at like my grandparents house because they live like two miles away from me and then or my house and my grandma everybody will make a lot of like very traditional vietnamese foods and like everybody will just be eating and then at the end of the night we'll do this thing where we it's called that but it's like it's like when you're like wishing someone like giving someone like your wishes for them during this new year so it's like for my grandparents it could be like oh I wish that you have a lot of strength and you're safe this like next year and you get to travel eventually Facing a pandemic didn't stop Northwestern student groups from hosting unique events and opportunities. The Chinese Students Association and Taiwanese American Students Club hosted their annual celebration event through Zoom, while the International Student Association held a goodie bag fundraiser complete with candy and red envelopes. How did you celebrate this year during a pandemic and just being 
away from home? Um, like I called my mom and we did like, we did a thing where like we wish each other like all of the fortunes and stuff. And then she sent me like a box of traditional foods and snacks um, for New Year's. And then I made myself um, like a very traditional South Vietnamese dish and made more, like, and then I prepped like the food my mom got me. And then today I'm going to Argyle, which is like the little Vietnam area in Uptown. And I'm going to get like pastries and just hang out for a little bit. The older I got, I think the less I started to actually celebrate it properly because I was like busy. Um, around this time, I always had like midterms, finals, like had to study for like SATs and stuff like that. But I think being at Northwestern with my friends, it was nice to be able to introduce them to like a part of like Asian culture that they might not have experienced before because all my friends are also international as well. And so, um, yeah, I think today was particularly fun because it was nice to like show them something that I like grew up with that they might not be that familiar with. Yeah, this year I got together with um, a few like friends who shared the, like our Asian background and we made dumplings together, which is something I typically do with my family at home. But obviously with COVID, it's not really safe to go back and um, we're at college. So we um, made the dumpling filling and folded them. Um, and just did that together and watched a movie. And it was really sweet. It was like, because in college, um, your friends are kind of like your new chosen family. Um, so to get to do these family traditions with them was very special. From Evanston, this is Maria Jimena Aragon, WNUR News. Hulu released the New York Times documentary Framing Britney Spears less than two weeks ago. And the show has been gaining major attention since. Maria Camaño reports on the pop star's battle for the control of her estate and the reaction from the world since the documentary's release. On February 5th, the New York Times Presents released a new episode of their TV documentary series on FX and Hulu. The episode, titled Framing Britney Spears, delves into the life and career of Spears, focusing mostly on her court-ordered conservatorship and how it sparked the Free Britney movement. The episode, directed by Samantha Stark and written by Liz Day, has since garnered a lot of attention, both positive and negative. But most importantly, the episode has allowed people to reanalyze how media coverage of Spears played a huge role in framing her to look like she could not make her own decisions. Through different clips and confessionals, one can see how Spears was portrayed as crazy by the media during a time where there were no conversations about mental health. Spears has been under a legal conservatorship for 13 years. Her father, Jamie Spears, has been legally in control of her person and her finances since 2008. The documentary, however, raises suspicion as to whether Spears should even be under a conservatorship at all. While under her conservatorship, Spears has been able to go on tour, as well as manage to handle performing at her Vegas concert residency for four years. The documentary asks the question, how can someone be a high-functioning performer while being portrayed as someone who is unable to take care of herself? Many speculate that Spears initially gave consent to the conservatorship so that she could seek more visitation rights to see her children. In 2019, however, Spears expressed her opposition to her father continuing to be the conservator of her finances, leading to a legal battle and her refusal to work until his role as conservator ends. 
Since the release of Framing Britney Spears, her case has now gathered much more public attention and interest. Fans have been using Instagram to communicate with Britney, flooding her comment section with messages of support as she continues her legal battle to end her father's control of her finances. On February 7th, We Are Sorry Britney was trending on Twitter. Many celebrities have also expressed their support for the singer since the release. Paramore singer Haley Williams tweeted, No artist today would have to endure the literal torture that media slash society slash utter misogynists inflicted upon her. The mental health awareness conversation culturally could never be where it is without the awful price that she has paid. Many others like Sarah Jessica Parker, Miley Cyrus, among many more, tweeted out the Free Britney hashtag standing in solidarity with the Free Britney movement. On February 12th, Justin Timberlake, Spears' ex-boyfriend, apologized for past comments about the singer after much backlash. Many say that this apology comes 20 years too late. There are even rumors of a new Netflix documentary on Spears directed by Aaron Lee Carr in production. For now, Spears continues to legally battle her father. After the release of the documentary on February 11th, Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Brenda Penny denied Spears' father Jamie's objections to sharing financial control over her estate with Bessemer Trust, a financial institution. Whether the documentary affected the ruling will probably remain unknown, but one thing remains clear. Spears' fans will not rest until they free Britney. For WNUR News, this was Maria Camaño. Many have strong opinions about the iconic geese on campus. And yes, many of them are negative ones. But there's more to the geese than just squawking from the lakeville and pooping on sidewalks. Oddities reporter Allison Rauch investigates the overlooked lives of Northwestern's resident, Canada geese. Take a walk to Norris or along the Lakeville, and you're sure to notice the campus geese. Chloe Chow, who hails from Evanston, says she's not their biggest fan. They're scary. Why are they here? (laughs) Why can't they just leave us alone (laughs) for like a couple months out of the year? Others, like Nick Francis, are more pro-goose. Yeah, I think it's really fun to to watch them, um, especially in the winter, like bearing the cold and just being out there being troopers, um, I certainly am not. And I think it's just fun to have have some wildlife and some evidence that things are still going on in the thick of winter. Love them or hate them, the geese are a fixture in the community. And since they're here to stay for the winter, it's worth getting to know them a little better. John Bates, a curator of birds at Chicago's Field Museum, offered some insight. They're Canada geese. Most of the Canada geese that are in Evanston and and around Northwestern are a population of Canada geese that are year-round residents. In other words, they're part of a subspecies called uh, Maxima that that doesn't migrate. They've got a lot of adaptations in in their feathering, in their body fat layers, and in their circulation mechanisms. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's really amazing that they can actually deal with these very low temperatures, but they absolutely can. Not only can the Canada geese weather the winter, they've also adapted to the interferences of urban life. We were involved in a project because we have one of the world's best Canada goose collections. There's the U.S. Airways flight that ended up in the Hudson. So that was a flight that actually ran into a flock of birds. When that happens, the the federal aviation folks pull out the feathers and they send them to the Smithsonian to identify what kind of bird they were. And the Smithsonian said they're Canada geese. We also had feathers of birds from the resident birds and the birds from the plane. And when you looked at the stable isotopes of those, 
they very clearly came out as birds from uh, northern Canada. What this illustrates is that resident birds like Canada geese don't want to get hit by planes. And so they're, if they're there year-round, they're figuring out where the planes routes are and actually avoiding them. The campus geese don't have to worry about airplanes, but they're ready and willing to defend themselves from students. I've been told that they can be aggressive, so I've kind of kept my distance from them. They tend to build their nests on the edges of, of places like the, the shoreline at the lagoon at Northwestern. And, you know, that birds are going to defend their nests. And, and one of the things that geese have going for them is their body size and the fact that they can open their wings and, and hiss at you. So they're going to absolutely do that to humans. Though Bates recommends giving them a wide berth, the geese can be safely enjoyed from a distance. People might have their problems with geese being, you know, to be frank, pooping everywhere and being aggressive, but I think they're troopers and I think that it's cool that they're here to stay. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rauch. Just in case you haven't seen the winter storm raging outside, here's Linus Holler with a weather report. Evanston, Chicago, and all of Cook County remain under a winter storm warning by the National Weather Service until Tuesday noon. Heavy snowfall enhanced by the lake will dump up to 15 inches of snow onto the Chicago metro area by tomorrow morning, and the winter weather is resulting in extremely dangerous driving conditions. Beware that due to the winter storm, commuting may be significantly slowed down or outright impossible for times, as heavy snowfall combined with windy conditions can result in complete whiteouts. Additionally, temperatures remain chilly and wind chills may bring frostbite in as little as 10 minutes outdoors, with wind chill temperatures dropping down to minus 20 Fahrenheit or minus 30 degrees Celsius. Snowstorm is not messing around and by far the strongest winter storm of this season so far. Stay safe and best stay home. Here's a brief outlook for the rest of the week. Heavy snowfall is expected to persist overnight and well into Tuesday, perhaps longer depending on how pronounced the lake effect will be. We are expecting new snow accumulations of over a foot, potentially significantly higher in places. Snow drifts can also result in locally deeper snow. Tuesday will see a high of 20 Fahrenheit or minus 7 degrees Celsius. By Wednesday, the precipitation is expected to have mostly stopped and there will be clouds with some patches of sunshine. Temperatures will range from 5 to 21 Fahrenheit or minus 15 to minus 6 degrees Celsius. On Thursday, the forecast models are currently expecting yet another wave of snow. We're still waiting to see what the expected snow totals will end up being, but they likely won't be anywhere near as crazy as today's. Temperatures will range from 14 to 26 Fahrenheit or minus 10 to minus 3 degrees Celsius. Friday, too, will likely bring some light snowfall with temperatures between 18 Fahrenheit in the morning and 26 Fahrenheit in the afternoon or minus 8 to minus 3 degrees centigrade. For now, the important message is stay safe out in the storm today and avoid traveling if at all possible. I'm Linus Heller with the weather for WNUR News. That's all for the WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and online at WNUR.org. On behalf of our producer, Alex Harrison, Reporters Melissa Perry, Maria Jimena Aragon, Maria Camano, Allison Rauk, and Linus Holler, as well as all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. Now, back to scheduled programming.